Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival podcast. We hope you enjoy this event, which was recorded live at the 2020 Book Festival. Hello and a very good evening and a very warm welcome to the online version of the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Jenny Colgan and tonight I'm going to be interviewing Marion Keyes. Now, when I was trying to figure out how for me to be a writer in my early 20s back in the 90s, there were two shining figures of whom I was desperately jealous. Uh, one was the brilliant Helen Fielding, who wrote Bridget Jones's Diary, and the other, a little-known character from Ireland, whose first book, Watermelon, took the UK and Ireland by storm. It was funny, it was relatable, it was full of real-life problems and heart and truth, and it sparked a huge sea shift in the way that young people and women in particular wrote about their own lives. Um, up until then, we'd had a lot of heirs to multi-million pound or dollar perfume fortunes in Judith Krantz novels who all had tawny hair down to their bottoms. And anyone with tawny hair down to their bottom in my world didn't have a problem at all. Marion was an inspiration to me then, and it hasn't changed a bit since. 17 novels, five non-fiction books, and 40 million sales later, here she is. Her latest novel, Grown Ups, has been a huge international success, finally alerting people to what the rest of us already knew. Few writers are as funny and as sharp on families and contemporary issues and it is a true tragedy that we will shortly be losing her to Brexit. I am so delighted to welcome her many fans around the world to the Edinburgh International Book Festival, Marion Keyes. Yay! Oh, Marion, you, listen, you have been doing what you do for decades brilliantly, uh, but grown-ups seems to have marked a real shift uh, you had the not the booker long listing has happened. You've had some quite surprise, like fabulous reviews in the big papers. Um, and you're going from being a kind of writer to a national treasure. How does that feel? Oh my God. Well, first of all, can I just say hello? And thank you so much, Jenny, for that lovely introduction. And hello to everybody who has tuned in wherever you are. I mean, thank you so much for this. And uh, please don't hesitate if you have questions to ask either myself or Jenny please do and we'll answer it um yeah thank you Jenny I mean it's 25 years since Watermelon was published like it's in September to be literally 25 years and I don't know something different did happen with grown-ups and like it was my 14th novel and uh and yeah the reviews were just so nice um and I mean, it's just that lovely feeling of like, you know, I never thought I was crap. Do you know that sort of way? Um, but people, you know, I've often been called like a guilty pleasure and uh, and that sort of thing. And it's just so nice to kind of not be something that people <laughs> are ashamed about. Um, so, yeah, it has been, I mean, it's been a lovely publication. I mean, it's happened at such a strange, strange time. Um, and, you know, it's hard to feel kind of delighted for myself when, you know, when life is so hard for everyone. But it has been incredibly, um, it has just been really rewarding. Um, and I'm really, really d delighted and grateful. Uh, just to say to people watching, uh, do send your questions in. We're looking for particularly original questions because, as Marion said, she's been doing this for 25 years. So she's been asked quite a lot of stuff. So 
send in your questions and we're going to read them out at the end. We're going to read the cool ones out. Um, actually, mine, just when you were saying that, how do you respond? Because if someone says chick lit, right, in a room I'm in, I go quite like feral, like unpleasant. What, what do you do? Same, like same. You know, I mean, I just don't understand why novels written by women have to have a reductive title. Whereas, you know, novels written by men are just called novels or literature. Like they're not called dicklet. And until they are called dicklet, I can't embrace the chicklet thing. You know, it's just, you know, don't get me started though. Like, it, but it is just another way of kind of making things that women create or do just not as important as the things that the men's do. Um, so yeah, I mind. <laughs> I get, do you know the amount of people that would use the term chicklet but would never call another woman a chick? Yeah, it's weird. Um, yeah, and I mean, I, the thing is like, I feel like, I, I feel so grateful that I actually couldn't care less what people really call me, but I mind on behalf of all women. And I just don't think it's something that should be let slip by because it's just all part of those kind of micro sexist aggressions. Um, and they've got to be all called out. I completely agree. Um, right, listen, I'm guessing there's quite a lot of novelists or people who are working on novels watching. And um, hopefully, uh, well, first of all, have you been able to work in lockdown? And if the answer is yes, then, you know, this is over between us. <laughs> you know, the first, I think about four or five weeks were horrific. And I mean, the foolish thing was that I, that we were all expecting ourselves to work. And not just that we would work, but that we would do all kinds of other things like learn Korean or how to play the flute. I mean, it was absolutely ludicrous. These, these demands that we were making of ourselves. And it just really saddened me because it is such a kind of a, a an indictment of, of this kind of extreme capitalist world we live in that like even when we are all terrified in the middle of a pandemic we should be using our free time to kind of to to learn another skill that can be monetizable so no I couldn't work and I mean there is actually a really good reason for this it's because when we're all frightened um we we have to disable the kind of the imaginative part of our brain. So, you know, we're in fight or flight mode. And so we're constantly vigilant. We're scanning the horizon for danger. Um, and that is actually one of the reasons why people have talked about such a kind of vivid dreams during lockdown. It's because the, the dreaming part of our brain, like the daydreamy bit, the imaginative bit, that was all disabled because it needed to be to keep ourselves safe. So then we go to bed and like, and suddenly like we're having all these kind of you know, acid trip kind of mad stuff going on, more mad than usual. So no, I couldn't work and I couldn't understand why. And then, but loads of other writers were saying the same. And then I read the thing about like the fight or flight and the disabling that part of the brain. So it made, it made sense. But after a while, I don't know, I think it was the tedium or something. And I, I'm sorry, Jenny, I, I have got some work done. Although if it makes you feel any better, the last three weeks I've got nothing done and I have been kind of, you know, really feeling quite low. I, I hope this makes you feel better now. I really, I offer this to you, my kind of low grade depression. But yeah, I had a couple of months there and I'm afraid it was going 
gangbusters. Um, I can tell you about it if you like. Yes, please. <laughs> okay. It is, um, I said I would never do a sequel, um, but people have asked so often for another Walsh book. And around the time, I don't know, last November, around the time I finished um, writing Grown Ups, I, uh, I wondered how Rachel from Rachel's Holiday was getting on. So I have, I have started a sequel and uh, I'm kind of a good way into it. And, and it's been weird because I've always been kind of, I, I just don't feel, sequels aren't for me. I feel like, you know, I, for me, it just feels like a bit, a bit cheeky, um, kind of swizzing people for the money for two books when there's only really one. But that, that's just me and like fair play to anyone else who writes sequels, you know, but this feels different. I mean, and it's like, it's 22 years since Rachel got written about. So like a huge amount has changed. So it isn't in many ways like a sequel. It does feel like a, a very different novel, but um, many of the same characters are in it. And I am, um, people who've read the book will know what I'm talking about. Some of the important men, one man, Wow, that's amazing. Thank you. I thought you'd be I thought you'd be lovely and excited about it. Uh, yeah, I feel kind of yeah, it's it's interesting and it's lovely. And I mean, yeah, I've had the three bad weeks, but before that, it was just such a kind of a it just felt like this lovely happy place to be like in my head like writing this while the world burned around me you know um so i'm so grateful for it i, I have one small problem which is if anything bad happens to any of the characters <laughs> i want 500 pages of everybody having a lovely time and everything going perfect that's, I don't want any uh, conflict. I want no drama. I just want flowers and balloons. Is that all right? Grant, I will endeavor to fulfill your wishes as much as I can. Um, I mean, the thing is, Jenny, like no book can be just about lovely things. There has to be some, some conflict or some loss, you know, because people get really bored when you just write about happy things. Um, but you know, like, I'm such a sap, you know that I can do nothing um, sad at the end, like all my books have happy endings. So, you know, at least you know that like, whatever happens, it'll be okay in the end. Well, I will trust, so have you got a title? Again, Rachel, again, comma, Rachel. Oh, very nice, yeah. lovely. So how are we gonna get that next year? No. Very slow, very, very slow. Probably February of 2022. Oh, yeah. Sorry, Jenny. But you know, like, yeah, like I've written 50,000 words, but that's only about a quarter. Like I'm ridiculous. Like I write these huge books and I promise every time that the next time I start them, it'll be a nice, neat 70,000 70, worder. And it just, it just sprawls and goes, you know, takes, on a life of its own and I'm just not able to do them short. So, you know, anyone who has stuck with me this far, thank you for your patience. I really appreciate it. I have a question about that. It might be a little bit writer specific, but knowing that your books are going to be long, 
Does that not bother you? Because I always know they're going to be between 80 and 110,000 words. So I kind of tick it off, word count, word count, word count. Does that, do you not feel bound by word count at all? No, I don't. And I mean, I'm sorry, I know that like, you have your way of writing. And I think it's amazing. Like, I so respect your work ethic. Is it like, do you do 2,000 words a day? Uh, 2,500, depending, yeah. Jesus, Mary and Joseph. Okay, you see, I have no idea how many I do in a day. Like, I mean, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Like, I have no clue. I have no idea when I sit down in the morning what I'll be able to write. Um, and often I'll end up with fewer words than I began with because I come across, you know, a scene that I think, okay, that just didn't work. Like, I'm very self-indulgent, I suppose, about the whole thing, in that I will write something and see if it works, and if it does, you know, I let it go. But an awful lot of the, the writing I do, I go down cul-de-sacs, and I'm trying out various, I suppose, character traits or interactions, and if they convince me, they can stay, but often they don't. Um, and that is, I suppose I just feel, I mean, I feel, I do feel, sort of embarrassed about it. But I also feel incredibly grateful to my publisher who, you know, there was a time when they were very kind of a book a year, good girl now, you know, we'll have the hardback out in the September and we'll have the paperback out in June, do it. And then, you know, they kind of, they realized I couldn't. Um, and that the best work that they could get from me was to let me kind of meander all over the place um, in a hello trees, hello flowers fashion. Um, so no, Jenny, I, I know nothing about word count, except that there's going to be an awful lot of the feckers by the time we get to the end. Tell people about when we taught a writing masterclass on the same day. <laughs> it was fantastic. We're so right, sorry. Myself and Jenny were doing a masterclass for The Guardian and like, and people paid, you know, like, um, like they came and, and they sat in a room and they took notes and they were like all either they'd all started novels or they wanted to and so i i was after jenny um so she had stood on um on the podium and you can see sort of what a dynamic person jenny is and how she is quite you wouldn't get into a row with jenny when jenny tells you something you do what jenny says so jenny stood there and she said word count word count word count you know you glue your bum to the chair the minute you sit down and you do not get up until you have written your 2500 words do not come to me if you are not going to take that attitude to your writing without your word count you will create nothing and so they were like, Jesus, that's fantastic advice. It's brutal. She's tough, but I'll do it, you know. And then I was on after lunch. So I skip in with my hello trees, hello flowers um, attitude. And then somebody mentioned word count to me. And I gave that same answer. I was like, well, you know, word count, it's not really all about words. It's about the quality of the words. And, you know, and I said that thing about I will often end the day with fewer words than when I began. And they were like, they were like, oh, my God, my head is blown, you know, like, but, but Jenny told us the one thing and she put the fear of God in us. And then you were telling us the complete opposite. I think we broke them, you know, and I mean, and I had no clue that you had, had been so kind of, you know, rigid about what you said. Anyway. Wait, the, the, the money was all refunded. Yes, <laughs> no, exactly. the money and we are sorry for the distress caused. No, but seriously, there is no wrong way to write a book. Like there absolutely isn't. I mean, the important thing is that it gets written. Um, and if you find a way of working like you have, 
which is incredibly productive. I mean, I'm serious. I, I really envy you. Um, but I suppose in my way, uh, it, it works for me, you know, in a different way, you know. What, which other piece of advice would you give to anyone that's working on a novel right now? I, I don't mean just like lockdown advice. I mean, in general, yeah. what's, what's the best piece of advice that would have helped you? Let me see. I mean, you lose faith in your project countless times, you know, and I mean, and I have very kind of black and white thinking about it, you know, like I will write something in the afternoon, say, and I think, do you know what, that is absolutely fantastic. That is a really good 300 words, you know, and uh, and then I'll go off and I'll come back the next morning and I will look at it and I think, oh, my God. I am so embarrassed, you know, I cannot believe, you know, the shame. I mean, and it's very hard, I suppose, for any writer to kind of judge their own opinion of their work. Also, there would be a huge gap between the words in your head and the words on the page or the screen. In your head, they are just deliciously fabulous. They are just so brilliant. And then when they're actually in front of you and you're looking at them, the lumpen, cack-handed, oh, amateurness is just excruciating. Um, prepare yourself for that. Um, I would always say, don't try and be like anyone else. I mean, I know it's kind of tempting when there's a kind of a, a fashion. You know, you see a load of books being published that are, you know, similar. And you think, okay, you know, I think I could do that. If you feel okay doing it, I suppose, do it. But I I love the whole thing of like an original voice or an original idea. Um, and like so many of the, the breakout stars, books, you know, in, in the last 30 years have been like, you know, like really idiosyncratic, singular voices. Like, I mean, I'm thinking of the work of like Sue Townsend or, you know, or Douglas Adams, you know. Um, I feel... To be true to your own voice is is something I would really urge you to do. Um, that, but, but I mean, at the same time, if you have bills to pay and if you think that you could write a good um, uplit book, do it, and um, and 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 the very best of luck. You're, you mentioned two comic writers there. Here's oh, yeah. a question that I am yeah. always. It's really hard to write funny as anyone who's ever watched an ITV sitcom could tell you. Why do you think that comic writers get so much less respect than terribly serious literature writers? Because you're a comic writer, that's what you are. I am a comic writer. Um, and I don't really know. I mean, I suppose, I don't know because, I, you know, honestly, I don't know. Um, maybe laughing is seen as as a less worthy um, pastime than, you know, than kind of plumbing the depths of human misery. Um, I mean, in, in fairness now, you know, and it's not just novels that it happens in. I mean, you can see it with, um, you know, with movies um, or, you know, as you say, uh, telly. Um, I, you know, I don't have a theory on that. Um, I have no theory on that. It's funny, that's not like me. I usually have a theory on everything. Do you have a theory, Jenny? I, um, it, no, it is weird because 
comedy moments in our lives are the ones we treasure. You know, people say, what do you love? I love Douglas Adams. I love The Office. You know, I loved, uh, I showed my kids airplane the other day and they wet themselves. And so, yeah, it's, and yet when it comes to awards and prizes and all that thing, they're seen as, I think maybe because people play the fool in comedy, they think perhaps that means you're foolish. In the yeah, same. it must be, yeah. Uh, or possibly, yeah, in the same way that I was at, um, I was on a panel once. This isn't about me, but I'll tell you very quickly. I was on a panel and somebody said to all of us, are you just like the characters in your books? And this was when I was writing quite, yeah. I was like, well, not, not, not really. <laughs> because we have 25 territories. <laughs> How do you answer that question? When people ask me, am I like the characters in my book? Yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, honest to God, men do not get asked that question. Like women are, women writers are treated as if they have no imagination <laughs> that, that they have no empathy that they absolutely cannot imagine what it's like to be another person um or that like we have you know that we can't use the tools of research you know to to kind of it is very wearying um so you know I would I would say to them would you ask Roddy Doyle that or you know would you want ask Colm to be in that and uh and I mean they wouldn't like they absolutely wouldn't. Um, so I think, you know, there was a time when I would have been way too scared to to say, to reply like that. Um, and uh, I am far less frightened than I used to be, which is just delicious. Like it's really, really lovely um, to be able to answer those kind of questions. But it is immensely wearying, um, you know, that obviously everything I write about is um is autobiographical like you know there's a bulimia storyline in in grown-ups like obviously um you know it was all about me like it it wasn't um you know that sort of stuff i know actually i find and i notice it in you and your writing actually uh, as you get it's part of getting older i think that you just oh, can't give a crap even if you wanted to how have you found your writing changing? For example, if I look at my early, not that I would do that, but when I think about my early books, there's no children in them, there's no parents in them, you know? It's just young people because when you are young, that's all you can see. And then of course you get older and you realize we're all connected and, and so on. So how do you think you've grown in that way? Um, I mean, Grown Ups is about seven main characters and four of them are men. And I think that's the first time that I have written men in that way. Um, yeah, in my early books, which, you know, they were romances and men were either good or bad. You know, it was very binary. Whereas now, you know, like the character of Johnny in Grown Ups, like he is such a conflicted man, like, you know, to the outside world, he presents as like an alpha man. He's good looking, he's charming, but like he is eroded with insecurity and he never got the approval he wanted from his dad. And, you, you know, to present men in their complexity is something that is something that I haven't, well, I suppose I did it a bit in the break as well with Hugh, but yeah, did that, it's more recent, you know, it's, it's newer. Um, and I think that, yeah, it's partly getting older um, and it's partly realizing that like, yes, our world is a sexist one, 
But sexism damages men just as much as it damages women. Um, you know, and presenting men like Johnny with this kind of very rigid template on how to be a man, like, a, you know, you, you do not display weakness, like, and it's your job to have, um, you know, to have the fancy, the fancy job. And, you know, you have to earn more than your wife. And, and he is really in pain because he doesn't hit these markers. Um, so, yeah, I suppose, yeah, that kind of my, my vocal feminism has, has also changed what I write about. Um, and I don't, I think I don't try and please as much. Um, the, um, you know, my earlier books, like they were kind of getting a laugh was more important than anything else. And probably Grown Ups is probably the least funny of my books. And it's because I thought I've got stories to tell here. I've got the stories of seven people and I'm going to tell it whether it's funny or not. And that, that was a lifting of some sort of a feeling of obligation that I had. Um, because I remember I used to agonize more in the early days about like, yeah, but is this new one funny? You know, it needs to be funny. Like I'm known as funny. And now I feel, yeah, I'm a comic storyteller, but I am a storyteller. And my, my obligation is to the story rather than its comedic tone. And I mean, I think inevitably there will be some strands of comedy in what I do. Well, for the moment anyway, but it's not something that I, I prioritize as much as I used to. Oh, that's interesting. Um, hang on, I'm very gonna, um, oh, well, here's something I wanna know, because I think this is very interesting from all the female novelists I know, but if you don't wanna answer it, that's fine. Work away. Um, because, you know, we're not just writers, obviously we're running businesses and, you know, when we were traveling, traveling and all sorts of things. And I see a huge correlation between women being able to maintain careers, not just obviously as novelists, but in all sorts of things and having the right support at home. How important do you think choosing the right man is to any woman in a career these days? Because I think it's more interesting every day. Yeah, I mean, in a way I'm kind of loath to generalize um, sorry, just to add there, sorry, I meant partner, I didn't mean husband. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the thing is, like, for a long time, men have been supported in all kinds of ways by, you know, their female partner, like their wife or their girlfriend. Um, you know, you see it in the spouses of politicians or like, I mean, you see it in, in male writers. Um, you know, so much of them, their wives are very, you know, I'm thinking of Ian McEwan, like, um, I mean, he used to travel with his wife. I'm, I don't know if he does anymore. Um, you know, and nothing was ever made of it. Like, uh, but my husband, um, when we met, he had a really good job in IT and, and I didn't have a good job. And there's so much to say about meeting the right person. I mean, it is, I would think, I mean, I actually, I know it, you know, there are some men who felt very threatened when their wives suddenly began having a successful career as a writer. Like they were initially very, very, delighted and then and then it bothered them um 
you know, and the whole travel thing. I mean, when I, I just felt so lucky to have been given a writing career and kind of my life changed very, very fast. And I knew that I had a lot of opportunities that if I didn't maximize them straight away, they probably wouldn't, they wouldn't be there. So in the beginning, I suppose for about 10 years, like I worked like a dog, like I worked incredibly hard in terms of travel, you know, and, you know, promoting my book and, you know, wherever they wanted me, um, you know, I'm kind of saying yes to like any festival who would have me like any TV opportunities. And like, it would have been, I suppose it would have been impossible to have had any kind of relationship with my husband if he wasn't with me. Um, you know, and the fact that he was really willing to do it and, and like genuinely, like with the fullness of heart, rather than a kind of a resentful, ah, God, I suppose I have to, you know, and like he didn't mind being the person standing, holding my handbag while I had my photograph taken. You know, I owe so much to him. Like just that we managed to have our together time because of his, what's the word? I suppose his maturity or, and yeah, like, I mean, he gave up his job and like he says he didn't mind, but there are plenty of people who would. So, I mean, I honestly think it is, it's, I think it's anyone who is successful needs some sort of backup, whether it's a personal assistant or whether it's a spouse. But I think to maintain, I, this is an awful thing to say, but to maintain like a career and a relationship it's really down to the man or to the, the other person in, in it. And I mean, we're so used to kind of women, you know, bending themselves into the correct shape to fit the man's career and life. Uh, it is newer, I think. Oh, it is far newer for men to be the person doing those kind of, you know, contortions. Um, and, you know, if you are lucky enough to have somebody who will support you in that way, you know, treasure it. And like, I mean, so much of all the lovely things that have happened to me are because of my husband's generosity. And now I am so afraid I am going to be smited. Um, <laughs> something, you know, Jesus, you know, like, um, yeah, that something is going to, you know, he's going to appear on somebody's camera, you know, up to no good. No, he's he like, he's a really... He's an incredibly generous and kind man. And, um, and he's on my side. And the thing is, I am on his. Um, and I am going to stop talking about it now because uh, I, I, I don't want to alert the god of um, smug women and be smited by it. I think it's a good way to end. Choose well. <laughs> yeah, do choose well. Choose well. Um, we... Um, Oh, I've got lots of nice things to say about you, but we're going to run out of time because just before we go over to questions from uh, people who are watching in, we are, you are going to tell the story of what happened when Marion and Jenny went to Stockholm. Okay, we're going to tell it together. We're going to tell it together because it's such a fabulous story. Okay, in May of last year, oh my God, myself and Jenny went to Stockholm as part of a kind of a, a female writer's thing, you know, and it was like, 
for people who wanted to write and people who had read our books. And like, it wasn't just us, it was a lot of Swedish writers as well. But I think Jenny and I were, we, we were the only ones who were um, not Swedish. And we were put up in this fancy hotel owned by one of the lads from ABBA. Like every single person we met said, do you know, this hotel is owned by Benny? It might have been Benny, Benny or the other lad. And we were put on the top floor and there were only three bedrooms on the top floor. And, um, and it was really gorgeous. I love Stockholm, I love Swedish people. And there was also a kind of um, a sitting room area where like we'd be doing our interviews and stuff the next day. So anyway, we did our thing the first night and then we all went to bed and then we woke up the next day and we had to do our media stuff. And, <laughs> and we didn't know who was staying in the third bedroom. And uh, so I was in the sitting roomy thing doing, doing an interview and my husband staggers into the room and he's like, he's as white as a sheet. And, and I said, what's up with you? He goes, Alexander Skogsgaard's just after getting out of the lift and helped the camera woman with her stuff. We're like, oh, Jesus Christ, oh, Jesus, you can't be serious. He goes, no, no, it is, it is, it is him, it is, it is, it is. And, um, and yeah, he was staying in the third room. Now, Jenny, I'm going to hand it back to you to tell your next bit. Well, there's two things. One you need to know is the third room was between our rooms. Right. We had a party wall each and i very quick aside the media room had either benny or bjorn's piano in it where he had composed and i play the piano so first of all i had to run off and play benny's piano that was my that was my extremely exciting thing anyway the next thing we did got us into quite a lot of trouble <laughs> which yeah. is we sat in front of his door with no I idea lay. no you tell it I lay on the ground outside his bedroom and I, and, and I posted it on Twitter and I said, I am going to lie here until he gets back. I am not moving. It was a kind of like a, the opposite of a protest. It was a sit-in, it was a lie-in. And, uh, and then, yeah, actually most people were absolutely thrilled for us, but there were some people who said, that's an abuse of his privacy and abuse of his blah blah and, uh, and I suppose, you know, we're so used to kind of objectifying men that actually it didn't kind of dawn on me Jesus yeah maybe it is an abuse I was just giddy I was like crazed with excitement so then then, then yeah right so anyway I got up after a while because he didn't come back and I got bored and um and I had to go and do another interview but we signed our books and we put them outside his door and the day went on and it was really busy and stuff. And Jenny, you went out for dinner because you're good at that sort of thing. You went out with the lovely people from the publishers, whereas I'm hopeless at that sort of thing. And I can only do like an hour and a half at a time of other people. And then I have to lie in a darkened room. Anyway, so Jenny comes back from the dinner and she's got, she comes into us because she's got lemon dime bars, which of course is a delicacy to us. So she comes in and the books are still outside Alexander Skogsgaard's door, his door. And anyway, Jenny decides she's going to bed. And so I come to see her out and we're, I open the door and I see the back of him and he is like nine foot tall easily and he's wearing like this fabulous suede jacket and his shoulders are like easily the length of a bus like a school bus like easily and he's he's got lovely lovely jeans on but he's so tall and 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 so he pauses at his door and he sees our books on the floor and he bends and he picks them up and disappears into his room and we were like we were like 
silently screaming. And then Jenny had to come back in so that we could loudly scream. And uh, But then we went into Jenny's room, which shared a wall with him. And what were we going to do? <laughs> we were going to do something. I mean, we weren't really. Do you know what I mean? It I think we were just... going to put a glass again. <laughs> we didn't, though. We didn't. No, we didn't. Like, we were just really excited. And I think most people, I think most people were excited first. But then when I got back to Ireland, my sister Rita Anne, her husband works with somebody who knows him, Alex Scogsgard, and he had seen the whole thing on, on, on social media and he thought it was gas. Maybe that wasn't the word he said. Whatever the <laughs> word was, entertaining and, and I approve of it. I mean, which is just so nice. You know, like Swedes are very un-up themselves and it just made sense that that would be his attitude. Then, of course, we wondered why he wasn't staying with his dad and what was the story there. <laughs> But then we just, you know, we, we were insane. Like, we were just too excited. It was, you know, it was one of the nicest things that ever happened to me. The whole thing, the lemon dime bars, everything. It was just lovely. And the nicest thing is he gave our bricks to his mum. Yes. So did I know that? They did. He passed them on to his mum. Is okay. Why I had... Right, I am going... <laughs> Oh, I can't wait till we can go places again. It's going to be so fabulous. Yeah. Okay, here we go. We have questions. They're coming. Oh, here we go. Um, uh, how do... Oh, here we go. This is a great one from Jill R. Both Marion's and Jenny's Wikipedia entries list the genre as chiclet. I'm a Wikipedia editor and I am going in to change this. Which genre would you like uh, me to change it to? Science fiction. <laughs> no. Um, I don't know. What, what do men get called? I think I Novels. I think they just get called books. I, I don't mind romantic comedy. I think romantic comedy is a noble genre of long and excellent lineage. You look a bit... Yeah. Hmm. But my, my latest book isn't romantic oh, comedy. Yeah. Relationships, it's, it's, I don't know. What's a comedy of manners? I haven't a clue. I'm just saying words here. I mean, that's a really nice thing to offer. That's really lovely of yes. you, Jill. Um, Christ, I mean, I never thought I'd be given this opportunity. Um, I've totally been uh, stymied by it. Modern? Novels about modern women? With that, sometimes comedy. I think I think contemporary novelist. Contemporary novelist, contemporary sometimes novel. comedy. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. What a great question. Okay, here we go. Lorna S wants to know if you could go back twenty-five years. Well, you'd we'd be children, obviously. Um, if if you could go back twenty-five years and have a conversation with your younger self, starting out in business, what would you tell her? Oh my God, that there will be ups and downs. There will be times when you think your career is over um, and, and you just regroup and you start again. Um, you know, nothing can stay in an upward tra trajectory forever. Um, nothing. Um, some books will be loved and some won't be. And you have no control over it. Yeah, and to just do your best work hard, do your best, and, and accept that you cannot control how 
people respond to your work and to enjoy the lovely bits because there are lovely bits, you know, um, and oh my God, yeah, so much, you know, once I finish, once you finish a book, there's no need to start complete immediately worrying that you'll never be able to write another. Um, yeah, I'd give myself plenty of advice just to, to enjoy it more and to worry less. Thank you. That was a lovely question, Lorna. Actually, I have a question. This is from me, and it leads on from this, but you've got to tell the truth. Do you read your reviews? Sometimes, yeah. I mean, I tell you, I would never, ever go on Goodreads or Amazon. I mean, I just wouldn't, because, because even the good reviews, it's a head wreck, you know? I mean, and it kind of interferes then when I'm writing something else. I think oh, they liked that and that one. And I think, you know, it's really not a good idea. But like, I mean, if somebody says you got a really shocker uh, of a one in a, in a bloody blah, there's no way I would go and, and seek it out. I mean, the thing is, I already know, um, you know, the bad things people say about me. Like, I'm well aware of them. Like, you know, I don't need to read reviews. Like, you know, people at the hairdresser will tell you, you know, or people like at the bus stop will tell you, go, you know, I just couldn't, really couldn't get into that last one of yours at all. The language you use, honest to God. Do you know, like people are so quick to offer the unpleasant stuff, um, but, but they are. And I mean, it's really odd. Like, you know, I feel like saying, well, what exactly, what job do you do, Mrs? You know, because, uh, you know, I'm not going to uh, to kind of launch into a critique of it. Um, but yeah, I always know it's very rare that somebody will say, I mean, the odd time it does happen, you know, in an unpleasant review, somebody will say something and I think, Jesus, they were right. They were right. And actually, I must try not to do that the next time. But mostly I don't because it's, um, it just damages my confidence too much. Um, yeah, and I mean, I'm just the kind of person who just I remember every terrible thing that's ever been said about me. And, uh, you know, I can do a grand job of my own um, of tearing myself to shreds. I really don't need um, the input of anybody else. So no, Jenny, I genuinely don't. Um, and I mean, everybody is different, but Jesus Christ, I think you'd have to be a right out masochist to do it on a regular basis. Having said that, the reviews for grown-ups were... were were lovely and I was told that they were lovely and I'm afraid I did actually, um, I did read them and then I decided I was going to do a folder with them all in it, like in those lovely plasticky, you know, those kind of see-through plastic envelopes where you can read it. Anyway, I abandoned it because I am, I'm bad at that sort of thing. It's up there still somewhere. That's a good idea. I can't, I can't bear the effect that it would have on my mood but also you probably finished it 18 months ago there is nothing you can do for these folk this is the thing it's done and I feel like with every book I did my best like I sincerely feel you know I can say that I did my very best with you know the ability I had at the time and it is impossible. I can't go back and edit it once it's published. And it's probably for the best because there will always be people with an opinion. And um, and that's their right. You know, that is absolutely their right. You know, I don't begrudge it at all, except maybe in the hairdressers um, or at the bus stop. I, I was at a, a book signing in France and um, a couple of women. And my, so the books were out and you could buy them and I would sign them. 
and this woman came up and I speak French but you did not have to speak French to understand and she nudged her French she went that one that one that one never that one <laughs> I was right there <laughs> well honest critiques uh, here we go um from Dorothy C. Many writers draw on their own experiences and things they've observed in friends and family. How do you avoid people recognising themselves or situations and being embarrassed, disappointed or even angry with you? I mean, I don't put real people in books. Um, like, I don't. Um, I mean, I pay attention to everybody I meet and anything that's, you know, remotely interesting or different I mean it all goes into sort of some sort of database in my brain but I would never put a real person in a book um the thing is though it doesn't stop people from seeing themselves or other people um you know yeah I you know if if I give a character say a particular phrase that I've stolen from say my brother-in-law um there are always people who will think that the entire character is based on my brother-in-law. And again, that's their right. But I just, it makes me very uncomfortable that people would think I'd do that. I just think, but I'd hate to be put in a book. Um, and I would hate, I just think it would be an awful abuse of power to do, but really it doesn't stop. I mean, I've had the maddest things where, um, there's a book I wrote called Last Chance Saloon, and there's a really, really, really toxic man in it called Lorcan Larkin. And he is he's tall and he has long red hair and he's an actor. And uh, I was at, of all things, a funeral. And I met this woman and she says, oh, you know, we have a we have a friend in common. And I and, you know, you're always a bit like, Jesus, what? You know, and she says his name. And I'd never heard of him. And she goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he was the inspiration for Lorcan Larkin. Like A, I've never met him. B, why would anyone willingly say I inspired one of the most horrible men in literature, Lorcan Larkin? That's me, you know. That's me. Read about me. Last chance saloon. Do you know? I mean, so no, I don't. Um, you know, I mean, the closest I come to kind of getting into trouble is when I tweet things about my mother, old woman, and my nephews, the Redzers, and stuff. But again. I'm more careful than it might seem. There's a lot, there's a huge amount that I simply wouldn't put out there. Um, like anything I do is with their with their blessing, you know, and there's like mo most of the things my mother says to me is like, you know, she'll end it with like, don't put that on the Twitters. So I don't. Um, but I think, yeah, I have chosen to be, you know, in public life or like out there, but my family and friends haven't. So, you know, I have a responsibility to protect their privacy and I do take it seriously. Um, so no, I don't, I don't put people in, in books. Um, and, and I suppose if you, it, it's more fun to make people up, you know, it's more fun to take characteristics from a whole load of different people um, and give them some stuff that you've never encountered in anyone, you know, and that the new person you have created is far more exciting than any real person that you might be contemplating putting in your book. If that was kind of the answer you were looking for, that, that is what I would urge you to do. Thank you for your question. <laughs> I used to, I found in the early days, if I wanted to take a characteristic from someone, I would make sure that the character was described as being exceptionally good looking. 
Nobody <laughs> minds. Really nice. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Actually, I, I'm going to ask you about the, um, because you are really good on social media. Exceptionally good. You, you, even when you're, you can be a little bit caustic when you go against someone and you don't, you just do it in a way that isn't seen as, that is just kind of seen as adorable rather than them. Um, do you ever think, I'm going to go down one of these days, I'm going to accidentally hate on Westlife or something and I am going down? Oh, yeah. I mean, especially, it's funny, I joked about it about a week ago. I am just waiting to be cancelled, Jenny. I mean, I just think something is going to happen. I am going to say something. And, I mean, I feel like it's, it's, it's inevitable at this stage. You know, anyone who's on social media, like sooner or later, they're coming for you. Yeah. Um, you know... Have you got, have you got a plan? <laughs> I haven't a plan. I mean, this is the thing. I mean, it'll blow up in my face without any planning. Um, but um, I do think, I, you know, the, the armies of the perpetually enraged are always ready to have it. They're always looking for fresh meat. Um, and uh, yeah, it will be me. I will be cancelled. I've already made my peace with it. It's fine. <laughs> Just... So, oh, here, this is, a, this is an interesting question, quite a serious question from Susan C. Rachel's Holiday was written over two decades ago in a world that didn't always understand addiction. And in some ways, Rachel humanised it, I'd say many ways. Thank you. Uh, as you now write again, Rachel, how much change have you seen in attitudes to addiction and sobriety that she is now navigating or will be navigating? Do you know, I don't think I've seen that much change, to be honest. I mean, I do think addiction and recovery is still something that happens on the margins. Um, I do think people still regard, I mean, I do, people are very, very uncomfortable around alcoholism, you know, because alcohol is such an important part of life for so many people. And I think people still feel any other drug, you know, a drug other than alcohol, is regarded as really quite scuzzy and 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 other no really i'm not sure that it has changed sadly i don't think it's changed that much at all um i mean that's my personal experience um i mean thank you so much for saying that that, that rachel humanized it because i suppose having i suppose lived through the alcoholic crash and burn myself and you know being a young woman who cared about my hair and my shoes and stuff like that I feel like it was important for me to try and let people know that alcoholics weren't just the men in the soiled coats you know on the park bench um yeah I, I'm sorry I keep saying it but I, yeah I don't think it has changed that much at all um I'm sorry I wish I had better news for you <laughs> but thank you for such an interesting question. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Give us, now we've got lots uh, asking about your favourite books and books you love and books you recommend. Uh, rather than putting you on the spot here, do you want to give us a couple of, uh, oh, here we go, Aliem says, uh, particular books from your childhood that you reread, even though they now resemble old manky but much beloved dog chews. I don't reread anything from my childhood. Um, the only thing I read in my childhood that I remember were Enid Blyton books and I adored them. I absolutely loved them. 
they were, you know, books were definitely my first drug. Um, but I don't want to read them now. Um, I very rarely reread books, like almost never. I just, no matter how much I love them, I just feel there are always too many new and exciting books. I, I'm just hungry for the new ones. Um, I, I'm just going to mention a writer that I'm, I'm reading at the moment. It's Eva Ibbotson. And I read The Morning Gift and The Secret Countess. And I've just started The Song of Summer. And I swear to God, they are the most beautiful. They Do you know her, Jenny? Well, I know the name. I don't think I've read them. I'm, oh I'm literally God. just writing it down. They are like the most... I, I can't, Anyone who's feeling like the world is, you know, if they're feeling like too raw and the world is too sharp edged, read them. She was, um, what was she, an Austrian refugee who moved to the UK, I don't know, 1934 or something like that. She's dead now. And she wrote the books, like not until, I don't know, maybe the early 90s. And um, they're just the most lovely books I've ever read. And they're suiting me down to the ground at the moment. So, um, that's kind of, you know the way, yeah, you're right, put me on the spot. Um, it's very hard to, I read so many people I love, um, but they're the ones that are kind of making me really happy at the moment, so. Well, the, I, you know, the last book you recommended to me was the Lisa Tadeo, Three Women. Did you love it? Of course. Oh, thanks be to God. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know um, it's high risk normally, but I mean, yeah. that book, I'd never heard of it. And then look at it, it, it just went on to win everything oh. and. Yes. Good, good spot. Uh, yeah, I mean, I loved that as well. And it's nonfiction and it's about women being honest about their desire, which, I mean, it shouldn't be revolutionary, but it is. Um, yeah, I'm glad you liked it. What else? There's a lot of excellent nonfiction out at the moment. The, um, the Terry White book, um, is it Coming Undone? Jesus Christ, that's, it is so affecting. It is the most devastating account of trauma and recovery that I have I mean I was so affected by it like it's it's fantastic um Louise O'Neill has a new novel coming in a week it's called After the Silence it's amazing um like I've loved all her books this is her fifth novel I would recommend this so so highly um I'm going to ask one last question then okay. we're going to wrap it up unless there is, a, you know, a song you'd like to do or <laughs> some tap dancing or anything else you want to join. Um, just, I know we didn't really want to talk about this time, but um, I think one of the loveliest things you've ever written is when you were asked about your depression and you said, well, it was an illness and time cured it. And it was such a simple and helpful and normalising thing to say. I've always remembered it. Um, do you have any more words for anyone struggling a bit at the moment? Oh, I mean, my God, I think I think there's probably a lot of people struggling at the moment. And it's no wonder. Like, this is very, very, very frightening. And I don't think any of us have anything really to, um, to compare it to. And um, keep life as simple as possible, if you can. And if you could identify anything that makes you feel safe or makes you feel that, that takes you out of your own head and the horror or the sorrow for a while just just grab it like glom onto it um i mean it's always worth if you haven't 
going to your GP. I mean, I have mixed feelings about about the efficacy of antidepressants, but um, like they work for lots of people. I'm still on a really low dose, you know, and and I am so not ashamed, you know. Um, like it's a very, I mean, I think everybody's depression is different, really. You know, I know that there are like kind of individual, you know, there are kind of like classic symptoms and everything, but I think, yeah, part of it is that you feel just so incredibly alone and so incredibly hopeless and and guilty. Um, and if you could try and remember that all those feelings are actually all part of it, um, it's it's not I can understand why people don't always want to talk to people because you've got to pick the right person because there will be people who will be just nonplussed they just they won't know what to say they are just like it's they don't have the tools to respond to you um so be careful you know when you're already vulnerable if you feel that you've opened your heart to somebody and they cannot be there for you it's just it's horrific I mean, the Samaritans are, they will listen to you and they won't judge you. Um, and I suppose the most important thing to say is that like, I thought I would never get better. I thought I would never feel normal or happy again. I thought time would never pass at a normal rate for me ever again. Time just was like, like treacle in a nightmare. It just took forever. And like, I feel normal for me, you know, yeah. today, like in terms of my mood, you know, like uh, there's a lot that I feel joyous about and very grateful for. Um, you know, when, when I just felt cauterized, I could feel nothing except horror, you know, and I felt like I loved nobody and nobody loved me. And now I just feel like I love nearly everybody. Oh. You can get better. Like you can absolutely, you know, um, but you have to stay alive. You know, that is the, 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 the kind of the one non-negotiable. You have to stay alive in order to get better. So like my heart goes out to you because this is a terrible, terrible time. And, you know, if you were in any way low before, this has just made it so much worse. So please take care of yourself. And remember, you can get better. Thank you so much, Marion. We're going to say that you can buy uh, Grown Ups, a copy of Grown Ups, I think, on the bottom of the screen. And I just want to say, oh, I wish we were in a room together. But no, do I. Great to see you. Thank you so much, everyone. And thank you to the Edinburgh International. Thank Festival. you. Thank you. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, everyone at the Edinburgh Festival who did so much great work. But thank you to everybody who listened. And thank you, especially to the people who sent in questions. You're so lovely. Thanks a million. Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Edinburgh International Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at edbookfest. You can hear more events by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and you can also watch a selection of our events in full on our website and YouTube channel.